Our first scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, found on page 156 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and the foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel according to John, the second chapter, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and money changers seated at their table. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, the gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. Break the bread of life for us, O Lord, that we may receive. And in receiving, that we may be fed. For your words to us are sustenance, as your presence to us is strength. To the glory of Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. As if life was not complex enough, I type my sermons on Sunday mornings. And this morning, I opened up Microsoft Word, as I do each and every Sunday morning. I don't like Aptos. I prefer Calibri. I lived through the Times New Roman transition into Calibri. I became effective for it. It uses less toner. Change. I'm against it. So here we are. 
in the second chapter of John, evidently not many people use Microsoft Word and realize that they changed the default font to Optos instead of Calibri anyway. You'll find out Monday morning, and you won't like it. <laughs> Beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, bam, right here we get the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is overturning the tables and whipping the money changers. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple was at the culmination of Jesus' troubles. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. He dismounts from the donkey and then goes into the temple and whips the money changers and throws out the animals. Not right off the bat like he does in the Gospel of John. For the other three Gospels, there's a through line from the disruption in the temple and Jesus finally taking on those who were corrupt and the cross. It happens in a matter of days. Don't mess with the markets, we learn. That's a way to get yourself killed, is to humiliate those in power and who are corrupt. But the commentators who see this happening at the beginning of Gospel John and at the end of the other three Gospels who are insisting that the Bible has absolute sequential authority, they claim that Jesus must have done it twice, right? See, he did it at the beginning of his ministry, and that's what John remembered, and he did it in his end of the ministry, and that's what the other gospel writers remember. Guess what? This is not the kind of thing you get to do twice. If Jesus had done it at the beginning of his ministry, you guarantee that the guards would not have let him back in just a few years later to do it all over again. John has a different agenda here. John wants to tell the story in a different way, so that he can loop back and portray what it is that Jesus is doing through the remainder of his ministry. What is his driving force? What is his zeal, you might ask? That's why John loops in this little reference to the 69th Psalm. Every Jewish reader of the text would have immediately known the reference, Psalm 69:7. I endure scorn for your sake, Shame covers my place. I am a foreigner in my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house will consume me, and the insults of those who insult you will fall on me. John puts this up in the front, fade to the opening credits, and the rest of the story of Jesus is told kind of in a flashback. It's been noted that the Gospel of John actually covers only 22 days of Jesus' life. There must be some other point that John is trying to make. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's take a look at John's intent. Man, when I was a kid and the preacher grab a cup of cold water, I'd sit in the pew just jealous. It's one of my favorite memes, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And in the meme, the answer is, I don't know what Jesus would do, but please know flipping over the tables and whipping the money changers is on the list of possibilities. Remember that the next time that somebody suggests to you that Jesus is tender, meek, and mild. Not always. 
Step back from the, the doves and the sheep and the animals milling around and the fluttering paper receipts from the money exchangers and the Pharisees nursing their whip wounds, the busted furniture. The temple was supposed to be the abode of Yahweh. As we read in the building of the Temple of Solomon, the great dedication, the glory of the Lord descends upon the Holy of Holies. And there was a place fit for God to dwell. A Bethel, from the Hebrew word Beth, meaning house, El meaning God. You just thought it was a name for Lutheran churches, didn't you? Bethel, Bethel Lutheran Church. It actually means the house of God. That's what the temple was supposed to be, the abode of Yahweh. The courtyard was supposed to be the court of all nations where people who were not male, Jewish, purified men could also pray. Women, people from foreign lands, those who actually had some impairment could gather in the temple courtyard and that was the very place where the market had taken over. Imagine, if you will, that you're walking down Ashland Avenue and you're feeling a little blue. You're coming back from the train. It's been a horrid, horrid day. And you've got a few extra minutes and you realize that the office door is open. And so you decide to slip into the Ashland Chapel for a little bit of contemplation, maybe some prayer. And as you take that left turn in the hallway and walk into the Ashland Chapel, you find out that in our infinite wisdom we have replaced the little chancel and the baptismal font and the pulpit and the pews with poker machines. Now, never, never mind that all the proceeds goes to the pastor's discretionary fund. And, you know, slot machines are pretty hot right now, and we're a church. We might be able to get around that little zoning law for LaGrange because we are a church. How would you feel? What would your response be? I hope you'd be a little annoyed. I hope you might have this little flash of this is why Jesus whipped the money changers and knocked over the tables. I think that this is in some way the intent that John is trying to convey that Jesus' ministry was frustrated by a failure for there to be a place that God could call home. That there was a place righteous enough and open enough and free enough that God could choose to dwell as one who was welcome. In this instance, Jesus comes into that courtyard that was to be open to the whole world, and it had been taken over by commerce, by exchange rates that weren't even fair, by the sale of purified animals with substantial markup. It would be like thinking you're an Aldi and the prices were Whole Foods. It's where God was supposed to be, Never mind the audacity of turning it into a swap meet, a kiosk with tour guides. God's glory had departed from the temple a long time ago. And the only one that seemed to be bothered by that fact was Jesus. So, if God couldn't dwell any longer in the ceremonial building, 
where could God call home? That's the point of John's little riddle put into the mouth of Jesus at the end of this vignette. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, we are told in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referring to the temple of his body. Not the architecture of the building around him, but a place where God could truly dwell. And that was in the Messiah, the heart of Christ, and those who followed Christ without fear. Or as John says in the first chapter of the book, just a few verses back, as many as received him, to them he gave power to be called the children of God, even to those who believed on his name. The temple had been corrupted many years before, but the hearts of those who sought God's love and will could become an appropriate dwelling place for the Spirit of God. So if the physical temple no longer was okay, filled with graft and manipulation, what about our physical temples? What about creating a space appropriate for God to dwell? If God's Spirit is to dwell inside of us instead of in an architectural stru a structure, a temple, a building, what sort of junk do we need to clear out to make room for the Christ? I have to uh, confess that there are times that my own heart is such a zoo of self-deception, of selfish desire, of manipulated values, that it probably would be good for Jesus to come and flip over some tables and drive out some of these distractions if my divine creator is going to have a place to sit down and commune with me. Drive the metaphor of Paul's writings. In preparation for this very meal, in preparation for communion, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote, let a person examine oneself in preparation for the meal, then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks the cup without discerning the body, as an aside, the body being these living temples of ours, both individually and collectively discerning the body of Christ, discerning our own body, if that discernment does not take place, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. We invite the living vital Christ into our midst to commune with us and the whole while we're wondering what's our portfolio return going to be tomorrow? Do you think people like the suit I wore? Do you think that what I said was thought to be smart by people who are listening? All of that extra gunk floats around in the open courtyards of our lives and it kind of enrages Jesus because Jesus is trying to create a place where God's Spirit can be at home and stay. 
And the act of cleaning up those values, I have to tell you, is a bit of a scandal to the rest of the world around us. What makes us proud of our kids? All our kids are numerically adults now. Emphasize numerically. Is it that they're pretty successful in what they've picked up their hands to do? That they're gaining the respect of their colleagues and their careers, that they're advancing? My son just got another raise. I don't know how he does it. Or is it that they're kind and thoughtful and compassionate? That they know how to give and how to receive love? Is that what swells our heart with pride? You know, she's not making very much money, and she's not the brightest crown in the box, but boy, does she look after people who are struggling. Is that what gives us that sense of transferred value? Or is it, look at the rate of return, like a temple money changer? Or, wow, did you figure out the arbitrage on that dove? It is where we transmute our values that inspires the presence and the ease of God's own coming to us. Don't be so foolish, the rest of the world says. You know, at some point they're going to have to make enough money to care for you because you don't have enough money to care for yourself, so maybe if they make enough, you'll be able to look after you. Maybe, you know, they, you don't like them, but they're doing well. All of that is evaluation that Jesus raged against, got him in trouble. As the other three gospel writers say, it got him in big trouble. We'll revisit the scenario when we hit Holy Week, those texts. But for John, eyes wide open, he wants us to understand the whole story from its end. That's what it's about, to be able to make a home for the presence of God. Not in a temple, but in our temple. As Paul wrote the message, this message, it's, it's all foolishness to the world around us, to those who are perishing, but the ones who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I'll, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolishness of the wisdom of this world? Since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs, Greek desired wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The cleansing act of God's rage to make space for God's spirit in us so that we might be Bethel, God's own house. Amen.
Let's connect ourselves with ages past by standing and speaking together the ancient Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand.